Welcome to the Mintcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather you didn't hear. I'm your uh, host today. I'm senior staff writer Alan McLeod. As an independent media watchdog outlet uh, that exposes the corruption of the ruling class, we are constantly hit by algorithms and other forms of soft censorship. So if you could help out in any way, particularly financially, or even just liking and sharing this segment, that would be very helpful. Today, we're actually talking about the media itself. Virtually nobody trusts it anymore. In the United States, uh, the country ranks dead last uh, among 46 nations surveyed in confidence in the press. Fake news scandals and constant uh, partisan bickering hide the fact that just a handful of corporations control something like 90% of what Americans see, hear, or view. Here today to talk about the problem and solutions to this problem are Nolan Higson and Mickey Huff. Nolan is a lecturer in history and media studies at California State University, East Bay, and Mickey is professor of social science, history, and journalism at Diablo Valley College, also in California. He's the director of the critical media literacy organization, Project Censored. Together, they've written two books, The United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and in Post-Truth America, and a new one, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Gentlemen, it is an honor to have you on the show. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us. This is awesome. Yeah, always great to be in conversation with you, Alan. Um, You're a stellar scholar in your own right, and of course, always like joining my partner in thought crime, Nolan Higdon. (laughs) Well, I'll ask Nolan the first question then. Um, We always hear about fake news a lot. Many people think of it as a very new and modern phenomenon. It seems that it was really came into public consciousness around the time of the 2016 election. But what I really appreciated about your book, The Anatomy of Fake News, is that it really lays out the history of this phenomenon. In fact, the very piece of uh, the very first uh, piece of news ever to come out of the Americas uh, was actually fake news. It was Christopher Columbus sending a message back to the Spanish monarchy saying that he'd discovered Asia and a new Silk Road to China, that uh, the locals there, were, there weren't many of them, and, what, and who was there, they were very ignorant, and there was gold aplenty in these places. And it continues throughout US history with many of our cherished heroes like Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson really deploying Trumpian tactics, uh, planting fake stories to slander their opponents. Uh, could you share some of this history with our viewers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're, you're you know, correct. There's a long history of fake news. And really, the, the reason why I wrote the book was I heard so many conversations about fake news being a new phenomenon and that um, we just needed to take the right approach to eradicate it. And, and I knew from studying history that was uh, naive, if not outright ignorant. Uh, fake news has been around for forever. Um, humans are kind of cursed in, in an odd way. We, we have the ability to imagine and create, which is one of the coolest things about being a human. Uh, but that also means we have the ability to to make things up and be susceptible to lies. Um, and those falsehoods have been around forever. So, um, yeah, in the, in the text, I, I cover mostly from an American um, American history of just how fake news has always been a problem. It's always been a part of um, American discourse. Um, our government, other governments have lobbed fake news at, at the populace. Uh, 
press outlets, both so-called legitimate and um, for-profit or satire press, so have uh, lobbed fake news as well. Individuals have created fake news for their own benefit, sometimes for like career, like folks like Jason Blair, um, you know, lied for the New York Times about the DC sniper, amongst other stories and other news outlets. Um, so there's, it, it's just a real long history of fake news. Um, every new piece of uh, communication technology complicates it, of course, right? There was radio created a new dynamic. It was followed by television and then the internet and then social media platforms. Um, but it's, it's been around forever. So that's why the, I wanted to write the book to one kind of contextualize the, the post-2016 moral panic, uh, but also to drive people toward more effective solutions rather than this kind of naive belief we could eradicate it. You know, the very first piece, uh, the very first uh, media outlet in the U.S. was established in 1690 in Massachusetts. It was called Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And it was actually shut down by the government after just a few days of operating, after one uh, issue came out for publishing fake news. In fact, what they called it at the time was sundry, doubtful and uncertain reporting was the uh, specific um, charge that was levied against them. But yeah, uh, going through history, it's just incredible. Even people like Edgar Allan Poe, was, uh, his first job was to be um, you know, just employed writing these lurid fake stories for the press of the Gilded Age, who you know, those owners were really started the practice of using xenophobic fake news in order to deflect readers' anger uh, against the business practices of the wealthy. And if that sounds at all relevant to today, well, just stop me now. Um, yeah, I guess uh, the flip side of fake news is um, is the sort of uh, uh, the suppression of real news, and that's where I want to get to you, Mickey. Um, your organization, Project Censored, is an academic media literacy group founded in 1976, and the point of it is to really highlight the stories that corporate media just refuse to touch for whatever reason. I think everybody should go out, uh, open a new tab, go to projectcensor.org, uh, check out their stuff, especially their radio show. Uh, could you tell me more about what Project Censored is and also um, what sort of stories constantly come up um, in your books and your research that just uh, don't really get any sort of uh, reporting in mainstream sources. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. Thanks for the opportunity. And I, of course, echo everything that Nolan was saying about the problem of fake news and the moral panic that was created around it. <clears throat> so that the the antidote was, well, you know, censoring, right? You just mentioned 1690 and the idea of shutting down fake news and censoring and so on. Um, we think the best antidote for the problems of propaganda and fake news involve critical media literacy education skills. And since 1976, Project Censored has prided itself in developing this kind of news literacy, critical media literacy curriculum. And uh, so we are in the, the line of work of education where we think that people are most likely to determine what's going on when they understand the rudiments of critical thinking, when they understand the breadth of sourcing, um, when they have even basic knowledge of things like the propaganda model that you've written about a uh, long time, Alan, um, from Noam Chomsky, Edward Herman from 1988's classic book, Manufacturing Consent, riffing on earlier propaganda problems. Uh, um, well, they weren't problems at the time. They were actually specifications from people like Edward Bernays. 
about how narratives need to be constructed by elites and people need sort of kowtow after them and journalists are supposed to set narratives and agendas, right? Well, that kind of really goes at odds with what we think journalism is. You know, and riffing on George Seldes in the 20th century, journalism isn't about being impartial and objective, which is impossible because of our cognitive and implicit biases uh, or, or overt biases uh, for some. Um, but it's really about telling the public what's going on. It's reporting in a transparent way. It's by following the Society of Professional Journalists Professional Ethics Code right, which is about reporting, causing no harm, reporting transparently. Um, these, these basic, these are kind of basic rules, but they're pillars of, um, you know, the journalistic ethical community. And I say that because there is a wide swath of the journalist community that I would argue is, well, something other than ethical, right? It's driven by other, uh, other causes or other agendas that aren't in the public interest. So what we do at Project Censored is we highlight the independent non-corporate sources of information that are not objective, but they are highlighting information, facts, transparently sourcing them about key matters that matter, the key matters that are of significance or import in society, but that the corporate press either don't cover them at all, or when they do, they frame them or they spin them and they distort the information. In other words, they create propaganda narratives around them and they create varying degrees of fake news, right? As Nolan points out in his book, there's a lot of different types of fake news, right? And of course, the most pernicious types of propaganda are not straight up falsehoods, right? Um, which as we know, going back, since we're riffing historically, Thomas, um, sorry, uh, Jonathan Swift, Right, 1710, the infamous quote, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. Not a new problem, except nowadays, in the, since the internet and the advent of social media, one like, one click, one share, and some stories go viral across the globe, uh, right? And it's, it's, it's as if, um, you know, false statements kind of circle the globe before the truth gets up and gets its pants on. We never know why the truth has its pants off. Um, but nevertheless, it seems like it takes the truth a minute to get going again and sort of catch up. And, and, and so what we do at Project Censored is, is we, try to, we try to showcase the best of the independent journalist world where stories, um, if they would gain more traction, they would, they would really shed light on some crucial and key stories. As Ralph Nader once quipped, um, all the major newsrooms should have our annual book sitting on a shelf for slow news days so they can pick up a story that they didn't bother covering last year or five years ago, right? So again, um, what we're focusing on doing is spreading news literacy, uh, teaching people how to develop uh, relationships, trustworthy relationships with sources, not just whole outlets, but actual, even just reporters in general. And we've seen that trend actually, that's one of the newer trends we see with Substack and so on is people even leaving well-established alternative outlets to kind of go it alone to sort of forego the baggage of labeling that we've seen really on steroids in a fake news era of moral panic. Whereas Nolan could tell us entire outlets have been deplatformed. Well, I'm talking to you, Alan, at Mint Press News. Menard could talk about that too. Um, whole outlets have just been shut down and labeled in this way. And again, the root of, of sort of helping us navigate this is media literacy education, not algorithmic censorship not blacklisting. And as this current whistleblower case with Facebook goes, um, this person, Francis Haugen, I believe, they're now testifying in front of Congress. 
Well, when does the corporate media ever love a whistleblower? Um, they didn't like Julian Assange. They didn't like Edward Snowden. They didn't like Thomas Drake. They didn't like Reality Winner. Uh, they, they didn't like Chelsea Manning. They didn't like Daniel Ellsberg, if we want to go back a generation. Why do they like certain whistleblowers and, and not others? Well, that gets into media literacy. Maybe we'll talk about that here with you later. Um, but anybody that didn't know that social media feeds so division has apparently not been paying attention. The scholarly literature already documents all, all of this, as Nolan has pointed out in numerous uh, publications and, and we have at the project. Um, but I think we live in a complicated time, Alan. And when you said at the beginning of this conversation, in the U.S. in particular, public trust in media is really low. And this really creates a civic crisis. And I think that we really need to address it through more critical media literacy education. Yeah, I think Mickey, uh, to make that connection deeper, because I think it's so brilliant the way you said those things right after one another, that the media always wonders, like legacy news media in the United States always wonders why there's such a distaste or distrust for like media elites. Uh, but look at what this Facebook whistleblower reveals, right? That like all of the public relations talk from Facebook was empty rhetoric, but the news media was like touting Facebook as the savior, right? They were going to get rid of the Trumpers. They were going to get rid of the fake news. They were going to deplatform hate. And now it's like, here we are where this whistleblower proves that you were totally ignorant, naive, if not outright corrupt for putting this power in Facebook's hand. And nobody in the media has apologized for their reporting on this for the last five years, that they're the ones who kept promoting this. Let's just put, let's just get Facebook and big tech more power. We'll, we'll somehow achieve a, the most like woke harmonious world if we just do that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, it was kind of this naive thought in the nineties and two thousands that um, the internet would come along and save us and it would break down these barriers and it would be this new peer to peer realm where true information would spread and, you know, ignorance and hate would kind of dissipate. But now in the harsh light of 2020, it seems like the opposite has happened. And these gigantic monopolies have uh, emerged like Facebook. And people really don't criticize Facebook enough, in my opinion. I mean, the most recent uh, statistics show that 2.9 billion people use this service around the world. And that um, around 36% of Americans use Facebook wholly or partially as their uh, biggest news source. And uh, that means that that's about 100 million American adults use it. You know, that wipes the floor with CNN and Fox News and uh, MSNBC, who, you know, a lot of these channels are lucky if they've got 1 million people tuning in. And Facebook has this enormous power and it's just not scrutinized. I mean, uh, one case which has, you know, uh, been in the news in the last couple of years is the case of Myanmar, where Facebook has this huge monopoly over um, communication there because for the longest time they allowed uh, the people of Myanmar to use, um, use the data for looking on Facebook for free, which is really important in a poor country with not you know, great internet access. But uh, when, that, uh, mass when the massacres of the Rohingya people were happening, uh, Facebook was contacted and said, look, listen, people are organizing a genocide on your platform. You have to take action. And they were extremely slow to do anything, talking about free speech. But then suddenly when Australia and their politicians start talking about regulating Facebook or taxing them, they, you know, hit the nuclear button immediately and just said, you know, no more Facebook in Australia. That blew up in their faces, but I think it shows their priorities. So, I mean, I guess uh, my 
question to either of you is what is to be done about all of this, uh, about the situation with Facebook, with social media, and uh, generally this uh, culture that's uh, emerging. I, I want to, I'm sure Mickey has a lot to say on this. I want to uh, talk about the first part of your question. I think Mickey's probably got a lot to say about what can be done or should be done. Um, the interesting thing about since the, the 1990s is there was this techno utopianism that, you know, if we just add more technology to everything, we'll make it better. Um, and Meredith Broussard says it morphed into like this techno chauvinism where it was, oh, just don't worry about it. Don't ask questions, add tech, it'll, it'll solve the problem. Um, one of the one of the real problematic areas is the American left um, really bit hard on this techno utopianism, and they developed a whole sort of online cultural movement that largely replaced uh, liberal politics. And so, leftists and progressives think that you know they're holding people accountable or that they're doing meaningful action online, and because there's no real weight supporting that, it, the left has largely collapsed under itself in this country um, because of that. And ironically, as Angela Nagel points out in her book, Kill the Normies, um, it was right-wing-leaning circles, the so-called alt-right, um, who used that space <laughs> to, to launch their power. So while, while Facebook's kind of talking talk this like techno-utopian manner from, from the left, they kind of miss how it's really served against left politics in a lot of ways in the United States. I think that's an important like context here um, we talk about because um, whenever we sort of get into the ways in which there's going to be uh, regulation of the industry, breaking up big monopolies, more transparency, all those kinds of things. There's pushback from leftists who, who say like, no, we're, we're using this platform meaningful ways to enhance our democracy, organize. And I think we need to really have the reflection on that because that's not the case. It's not bore out in, in the data. Yeah. And to build on what Nolan is saying, um, these private corporations are relatively unaccountable. They all got started with public support and public money going back to DARPA in the 1950s. Um, they claim that they have proprietary algorithms and it's not affected by the First Amendment because they're, pri they're, they're private corporations. And um, we see sometimes people like, um, you know, the head of uh, Twitter, you know, re reluctant, reluctant to censor anybody, but then ultimately capitulates and and uh, they'll they'll wipe out a Trump. But meanwhile, as Mint Press News has covered, 800 other sites have disappeared or been deplatformed that were progressive or left. Right. And so it's interesting that among a lot of the, the groups crying about the problems of social media, they're actually arguing that fact checking and censorship is the way to go. And who fact checks the fact checkers? And as Nolan was suggesting here, this techno chauvinism is that, well, we can just create a better technology to fix what we what, what was wrong before and what has subsequently been broken by that technology. Well, again, this is a nonsensical cycle. Um, and again, uh, the idea that all this comes from public monies, public seed money. And as you said earlier, Alan, three billion people around the world using a platform like this. This is well beyond anything that should be um, uh, uh, up to the whims of a boardroom and some investors, right? Basically, three people decided that Donald Trump should be kicked off of social media, right? If you want to get down to the brass tacks there. If that's not some kind of technocratic fascism, I don't know what is. Though, ironically, this is all born out of the freedom of the internet culture, right? And again, I'm going to double down on this. Nolan and I wrote about this in the United States of Distraction. 
on media manipulation in a post-truth world and what we can do about it, we identified over 50 some years, how did we get here, right? Lao Tzu, if you're not careful, you'll end up where you're heading, right? <laughs> Are we there yet? Um, you know, in the United States, we've had a collapsing infrastructure when it comes to education and media. So if you take a look at some of these major problems that didn't develop overnight and you begin sort of chipping away at them, you can begin to rebuild a foundation of a critically thinking society that appreciates diversity in media as the backbone of a stronger democratic republic, right? Which is in theory where this starts, but it goes way off the rails. You know, you know we have a pervasive uh, commercial entertainment culture, number one, and that gets worse by the day. We have become increasingly hyper-partisan in over the last half century, meaning like off the rails worse than even in the Cold War. We have a deeply fragmented media landscape exacerbated by social media. Alan, you just said that somewhere near 100 million people are on a particular platform. I mean, Tucker Carlson's lucky if he gets a couple million people a night watching, and that is considered the, the record audience level, right? So where are people really getting information? You said it. Social media is not a journalistic outlet, right? And it, it appeals to people's confirmation bias. It's the worst possible recipe for people to get accurately informed about the things going on around them. And of course, the last thing we pointed out, other than a fragmented media landscape, was that we have an ineffectual education system that's not based on critical pedagogy. It's based on rote memorization. And it's based on, you know, trendy, faddish corporate slogans um, that are replaced every five years, right? Or 10 years, whether it's no child left behind, race to the top, fill in the blank. Um, we can't have a conversation about what's wrong about social media and journalism without addressing all of these historical contexts, which we do in our publications and in our show and in our movie, United States of Distraction, um, that you can see online for free. That was um, narrated by Abby Martin of the Empire Files. But we actually go through a whole section in our book called Make America Think Again. And our next book at Rutledge is called Let's Agree to Disagree. It's a whole primer on critical thinking and critical media literacy that's connected to conflict resolution and communication. So now we're trying to address the situation that social media has just absolutely exacerbated to a point to where we have people running and reaching for alarm buttons like this Facebook whistleblower. Is she really telling us anything that we didn't know or suspect? Or is she a Trojan horse for more censorship, more control? More, you know, I mean, the, dream, the dream idea would be maybe, maybe this leads to a breaking up and more regulation, but that's not been the trend of Congress or the FCC. The trend has been pushing back on the corporations to police themselves with fact checkers like the Atlantic Council, the PR arm for NATO, you know. Um, I mean, again, it's, it would be laughable if it weren't so obviously problematic. But again, you know, this is the new frontier. This is where we are. And I think we need to spend more time listening to critical media literacy scholars about, about these situations, not, techno, not technocrats, not bureaucrats, and not censors. Yeah, and the, uh, that's so true too. And these these companies uh, going off the roofing off United States distraction. These companies brilliantly take what is a systemic issue, right? Social media is designed, as, as Mickey said, to confirm bias, uh, to to engage you with divisive content. So we get to a place where literally there was a survey at the end of last year or the beginning of this year, excuse me, where Americans' number one fear is other Americans. 
that's how divisive we've become um, in this country. And so you get to this place where it's clear that the platform is just systematically is contributing to it. Even the, the whistleblower said this, that when Mark Zuckerberg tried to push uh, pro-vaccine information, the platform is built in a way it's so divisive, he actually helped amplify anti-vaccine information. So th that's the way this thing is designed. But with the brilliance of what they do is they take it from a systemic issue and they make it an individual issue. Just people who believe this idea will remove them or this, this figure will remove them. Well, simultaneously, they have this program that protects elites. So if you're in power, elected office, if, if you're a wealthy um, person, you're not held to the same moderation standards as everyone else. Um, does that sound like election meddling much? Because if I ran for office against one of these folks, they ha they are not moderated, but I am. Um, sounds quite like what they would call Russian uh, meddling just about five years ago. Um, I, I do I do think though one area where um, I, I am optimistic that maybe the government will take action. Uh, and Mickey's right throughout this whole social media um, experiment our bureaucrats have always sort of responded to everything as a partisan issue, right? So leftists would get upset and they'd go after Trump and then the right wing get upset that uh, accused Silicon Valley of pushing like liberal content. It was always through this like partisan lens. I think the emphasis though on child children's health and the fact that Facebook is targeting children and knows their platform is, is against um, is, uh, having uh, undue health effects on children. I really hope that child health does not become a partisan issue. I'm pretty confident it won't. I'm, I, I may eat my words because this is the United States of America, but uh, I hope that that is something that can bring Americans together and be like, we got to do something about this. You can't have freaking 12-year-old girls with going through these undue health effects of body dysmorphia. There's nothing. Uh, I just don't say you could spin that into a partisan issue, but maybe I'll be proven wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the past few decades, tribalism and partisanship have, you know, really gone through the roof, especially in the US, but really everywhere in the uh, developed world. I mean, uh, every November, December, Thanksgiving and Christmas, people are, you know, scared or anxious to even go back to their family because they know they're going to get in these arguments with their uncle or their granddaughter. And so much of this is being pushed by media sources, not just the likes of Facebook, but certainly them, but also the legacy media like Fox News. I mean, I remember they did a segment. It was all this inflammatory thing about how Democrats would rather their daughter bring home a member of MS-13 than a Republican. And then Democrats responded to that by saying, yes, we would rather have their daughters go out with, you know, our gang members. So <laughs> there's just this, uh, this real, uh, you know, juncture, this dislocation and, I'm certainly not somebody who like looks back on broadcast media in the bygone era as good. There were so many problems with it, you know, like who got to speak, who didn't get to speak, who controlled it. But at least back then there was the sense that broadcast really was broadly cast, meaning that everybody had this sort of same set of opinions of a baseline assumption about how the US works. And um, you could go from there. But, you know, in this, era, in this era of social media bubbles, I'm not sure how we can get back to that. And I suppose that does bring me to your book, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management and Critical Media Literacy. Um, does one of you want to talk about that and why you wrote it and what you're really looking to do with that book? Well, I, I'll kick it off. And I know Nolan will have a, a lot to say. Um, about maybe some of the more specific contents, but everything that you just noted, you know, Nolan and I actually even wrote about this, the issue of uh, 
going back to the 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 the, the purportedly hyper partisan fifties, the McCarthy era, right, or the heights of the Red Scare in the sixties. The, the examples like you just mentioned about you know family societal arrangements um, were far more tolerant even in the intolerant fifties than we're seeing in the current extraordinarily hyper partisan climate uh, that we're inhabiting. I mean. It's not just hyperpartisan for people who are in it and paying attention. Nolan and I also, one of our day caps is historian. <laughs> so we can't help but look at history to help inform the present. And um, that's really what dr- drove this, this idea to write this book, Let's Agree to Disagree, is that there's, in this so-called cancel culture that we inhabit, we have... Um, people on the left decrying the overt censoring of the right, and they're trying to censor critical race theory, and they're censoring racism, and so on. And then on the other side of the spectrum, they're censoring speakers, and they're they're censoring platforms. You know, and and basically at the root of it, what we ended United States of Distraction with was a segment called "Make America Think Again," which is kind of joking, tongue in cheek, right? Not suggesting that we forgot how to think or we never thought or, or what have you to get into the partisan weeds of it all. But what we were saying is, is that we've moved away from get the facts first and we've moved way more towards, I've already got my mind made up, now let me go and prove it to you. Um, and it's backwards, right? You know, Mark Twain quipped, get your facts first and you can distort them as much as you please. Right. The late Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York in the Senate said, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. No one's entitled to their own facts. Well, that's kind of riffing on what you were suggesting about the broadly cast world, right, of bygone days, not the rose colored glass that. But you get what I'm saying. We've way moved away from just nuts and bolts reporting to where almost all forms of journalism are some type of opinion journalism, some type of first person experience journalism. Um, And again, I'm not saying those are bad. What I'm saying is they're different. And what we see on the major cable outlets, whether it's Fox, MSNBC, or CNN, um, they're so completely wedded to an ideological brand that you can't even have modest criticism that goes against the brand on a given network without people being decried as heretics, right? The Jake Tapper just happened with Jake Tapper on CNN not long ago saying like, you know, maybe Biden's making a mistake by hyper-partisaning vaccines. You know, maybe he shouldn't be calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated, which is an unfactual statement in several ways, and also purposely pits people against each other in an area of our lives where we shouldn't be. I mean, this is one example, but even at CNN, to even have a modest discussion or disagreement, which would resemble a journalistic debate, it's verboten, right? Um, and, and that right there in a nutshell, there's a billion other examples, but that's, that's really what needs to change. We don't have, social media does not model functional communication. Okay. It's the opposite. The book we did purposely tries to model what does this look like? Why is it important to have theoretical backing in social science? Why is it important to have basic media literacy skills? Why is it important to understand representation? Why is it important to understand how to construct a logical argument and avoid fallacies? What are some basic things we can bring to the table about being critical listeners, compassionate listeners, and how can we elevate our cultural competency to understand people who are different than we are, right? 
Those are the things that we can all do to, the bring, to, the, to bring to the table, right? But much like the, the pandemic, many Americans want the quick fix, the quick shot, and what have you, to fix a problem that's long time in the making and ravaging the world as we speak, right? We need a more long-term approach you know, to what's been referred to as an infodemic, right, in, in many ways. And we really need to go to the back to the core of understanding how to critically think, how to communicate, and even how to agree to disagree. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think kind of to, to riff off that, to Mickey's point, um, this book is really kind of our, our plea. Um, we went on our last uh, book tour. Um, we kept getting asked, well, you know, like, I want to talk to uh, the other side, or I disagree with so-and-so, but I don't know how to talk to them. And um, we sort of followed that line of thought, like, what is it that prevents people from being able to talk? We, you know, we both have studied the democracies throughout history, and believe me, they've all had their problems. But generally speaking, you know, the people have recognized that they, they share some space, even if they totally disagree on policy issues, and they're able to, to communicate as such. But we, we just saw that there was something in the culture. We were out there talking to people um, that... It was just so divisive. So this book was basically our plea for democracy, right? There was all this talk in 2020 about how democracy was on the ballot, uh, you know, which which wasn't true. But um, it was still the idea that people were talking about democracy. They cared. And we took sort of a radically different direction. We said, we care about democracy, but it's not going to be a once every four years you turn out to vote and protect it thing. We, we got to change the culture. We got to change the way we get information. We have to change the way we communicate. We have to change the way we think about each other and ourselves. Um, and so that's really what this this book is. It comes into kind of that moment, you know, this moment where about half Americans tell pollsters that they think they're going to see a civil war in their country in their lifetime. I mean, that, that's in, that's insane. Um, there's nothing more antithetical to a democracy than a civil war. Um, and, it, you know, it's part of the thing that I think complicates it and that we really emphasize this in the book is that our, our media system is now trying to keep up. Our, this our news media system is trying to keep up with social media and that it's rapid. It's trying to always distract us, change our direction, um, find the newest outrage, the outrage machine. And a moment ago, you talked about visiting family members. I mean, sometimes you, you see folks that they're just going on about some story I've never heard of, right? You know, it's, they'll say like an undocumented immigrant, you know, is burning buildings. And I'm like, what? Where did you hear this? Um, but it's these, these outrage, um, you know, total fabricated stories that, that they're fixated on. And the prime example of this was Afghanistan. Um, I couldn't believe how many people had an opinion on Joe Biden um, pulling the troops in, in Afghanistan, because for 20 years, I could, could not find a person who had an opinion on Afghanistan or knew what was going on in Afghanistan. But all of a sudden, we were 330 million experts. Um, that's the power of, of news media in the United States, right? It just directs, it redirects and redirects. And, and we're so outraged about the new thing, we rarely stop, reflect, think, or communicate with each other. And so this book was our way of saying, we have to change that. And we, we gave some applicable steps that we think people can take to start thinking about how to approach people they disagree with, how to engage with information um, that they doesn't agree with them, and also how to engage with media platforms. Um, what are the benefits that we can hold on to? And what are the um, negative aspects that we can hopefully mitigate? That's kind of the book in a nutshell. So you're both critical media scholars and teachers. I mean, what sort of, what does that look like? What sort of tools are you trying to give students that you teach? Uh, how are you trying to uh, prepare them to kind of like uh, for this intellectual self-defense as Noam Chomsky talks about it, how, 
how are you trying to prepare these people to really critically evaluate what they're reading? Because um, I think it's so important, but most people don't really have any sort of like theory or understanding or just general uh, knowledge about what they're reading and, you know, what sort of sources they're going uh, from. Um, how do you really prepare people for this world? And certainly it should be something that's taught in schools, but ultimately it's not. So how do you, how do you guys go about that? Um, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm going to start, I'm not being ageist, but I want to say that, that Mickey has uh, been teaching critical thinking for, for a lot longer than me. It's got um, sort of fabulous record um, to, to say the least. So he's, he's going to, that aspect, he can definitely talk a lot about, but kind of closely related that, I guess this is kind of a question for Mickey. Um, that I've noticed in my teaching, we're, we both teach in higher ed and um, content wise, students are engaged. These are the things they're thinking about. They're ready to debate these things in the classroom. We try and bring in topical issues um, in both of our cases. So whatever kind of um, topics are out there online and legacy media, we use those as examples that we can help teach critical thinking and critical media literacy. So we do things like cancel culture or Trumpism or uh, whatever, whatever it may be, we purposely bring that stuff in the classroom to show that you can have these discuss controversial issues in a responsible and a professional way. And that's a good window to, to do that. Um, I think one of the challenges that, that we face, and this is where I think Mickey would be really interested to jump in here, is um, a lot of students, even though they're interested in the content, they're used to a different learning style. That is so much of our uh, K-12 education in the United States is fixated on bubble filling and finding the right answer where you come to a critical thinking classroom and the emphasis is on, look, think your way out of this. What evidence do you have? What evidence do you not have? What assumptions are you making that, that are baseless? Um, so reflect on your argumentation skill and the argument you're, you're hearing. Um, and once we kind of get past that challenge, I find that students do, do really well and they, they can apply those sort of old school, for lack of a better term, critical thinking skills to any of these new media platforms. And um, in, in the process, we say, don't just think about what's true and what's false. Think about the power dynamics that are at play. Who does this argument benefit? Um, how does shaping this argument in this way privilege one group over another? Um, you know, so, it, so getting those issues, especially of like race and gender and sexuality and ability um, in the classroom as well to look at how they shape the way we, we uh, interact with media and information is, is really engaging. So those are some of the, the techniques we use. But I'll, I'll toss it over to Mickey. So building on what Nolan said, again, agree with everything Nolan said, and I, he's actually teaching uh, some of our new book that's not out yet at UC Santa Cruz right now, um, te- you know, in, in the classroom, like modeling this stuff in the classroom, getting feedback. We got feedback from our students as we were writing this book and as we were writing the last one. So we don't view teaching and teaching critical thinking as a hierarchical teacher-student thing. We look at it as a way where we're literally modeling it in the classroom the way we wished people would model it out in the real world, right? With real histories, real current events, real contentious issues, but with the toolbox right front and center. The critical thinking toolbox, for lack of a better word, I know that's hackneyed and cliche, but the toolbox is there. And what we encourage people to do is to bring it with them everywhere they go. I know that makes you popular at parties and family gatherings. Um, but we got to bring it. We got to bring that game, right? We've got to, because those are the rules to the game. And, you know, Nolan was talking about the way that uh, the K-12 system, and he's written about this in Anatomy <clears throat> of Fake News and his dissertation and other places. Um, we don't teach critical media literacy in the United States in a K-12 way, not systemically at all. 
By the time you get people into adulthood, they've already developed all their confirmation biases, implicit biases. They've already adopted various views and opinions from whether it's their religious culture, family culture, political culture. I mean, fill in the blanks, media culture. Talk about a pervasive influence on, you know, conformist culture and capitalism, right? And what sells and what's popular, right? You know, we're just swimming, in this kind of a, of a confused media saturated landscape in many ways. And the way in which we navigate it goes back to critical thinking, critical media literacy education. Um, Nolan mentioned that the way we test knowledge through, you know, um, bubble tests, right? Well, let's think about that model. The bubble test is really a filter bubble test. Whoever asked the question has a certain answer in mind, and it's the right answer to them. The givers of the test, as Howard Zinn would say, historian Howard Zinn, or Howard Zinn, right? He would always talk about who's giving the test, who's making the questions, who's not, who's not being asked. This is a huge component of critical media literacy. Who is being represented? Who is not? Who has power? Who doesn't? Right. And so part of this class posits all these questions for the students in a frame where we're not looking for, quote, the right answer. We're looking for them to engage in the process of seeking truth as a transparently sourced factual outcome that could have different perspectives. We teach history, historiography. Historians look at some of the same evidence and come up with different perspectives about what it means overall. That's what historiography is. That's what it's about. You know, and, and, and historians, I think, should have more of a place talking about things that are happening in the present. I know some historians disagree with that, but that's really what's, that's what's required here in terms of modeling. We, as Gore Vidal said, we're like in the United States of amnesia, right? Well, because we live in the United States of amnesia, we're prone to be the United States of distraction, which has created a United States of division or a disunited States of division in many ways. So all of the work that Nolan and I do central to education is based on critical pedagogy. It's based on empowering the people that are in our classroom. And we are all teachers and students and we all teach and learn from each other. But we then we hold up these principles. We hold up Society of Journalists, professional uh, ethics codes, right? We hold up, uh, we understand what our limitations, cognitive biases are. We understand logical fallacies and how to avoid them. We teach people how to construct logical arguments and, and, and understand and assess the factual integrity of information, right? I mean, this is stuff that information scientists and librarians have been doing forever, right? But notice we've kind of relegated librarians just totally to the margins of our culture, right? They're just stereotypical memes for most people, right? That's that's a bad sign in a culture because we're talking about a group of people that are experts on what there is to be known epistemologically, right? Librarians should be front and center helping inform our pedagogies, helping inform our journalistic practices. Um, last week was banned books week where we're supposed to be celebrating the right to read and the right to know. Yet here we are in a social media world where censorship is pervasive, where we have people both decrying it and cheerleading it right to left, right? Those are all signs that we have a dysfunctional information system. And I'm going to sound like a broken record and dating myself because I'm talking about records. We need to have critical media literacy education. We need to teach critical thinking. We need to help people understand the utility of thinking critically and independently. We are not in the business of telling people what to think, right? 
And as Emma Goldman once said, the, the most unpardonable sin in society is independence of thought. We need more sinners. We need more independent thinkers. But you can't be an independent thinker until you really go out and start thinking about the many possibilities out there in the world independently. It's a process where there is not a shortcut, right? We could call ourselves the United States of shortcuts or abbreviations, right? Everybody wants a short way to do it. There's no short way to think deeply, critically. And as you know, Alan, as a scholar yourself, we think about these things for a long time, 20 years, 30 years. You know, I've been in higher education 20 plus years now, and I'm very fortunate to have been there. And I've met people like Nolan along the way. And this is what does give me hope is it's the students. It's, it's the people that are hungry for knowledge, that want to know, and that know that we can do better. We can have a better media system. Part of that solution goes to things like Victor Picard talks about the public funding, right? We need like $30 billion to fund a true public independent media system in the United States, which is totally doable because that's a drop in the bucket compared to what we throw at the Pentagon or something else. We're not serious about media reform in the U.S. because the media system works very well for who designed it, the, the elites and the plutocrats. And the last thing those people want is we, the people, having the keys to drive our own information cars on our own highways, right? That are done in the public interest, not private, and that abhor censorship and welcome diversity of viewpoints as don't get the quote slave owners like Tom Jefferson every day. But if I did, I'd go back to the inaugural address in 1801, where he said, let error of opinion stand where reason is free to combat it. Yeah, I think uh, our education system is deeply, deeply flawed. I think we have to have far fewer chalk and talk classes and much more critical pedagogy on the, uh, along the lines of uh, Paulo Freire. It's 100 years uh, this month since Paulo Freire was born. Uh, we and talked about that a little born. bit. I do have to interrupt and have Nolan and a great group of media scholars have a conference coming up called the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. This is the second annual conference. You might want to mention about it. But the, th the theme this year, Alan, is celebrating the 100th year of the birth of Paulo Freire. So sorry for interrupting, but well, it was no, a perfect opportunity. Uh, I was actually going to just jump into that uh, conference because, of course, um, the great irony about this is that people who are really talking about uh, censorship and, you know, what can be done to combat fake news and these, you know, the sort of some of the best academics in the country were at this conference last year. And one of the big topics was about algorithmic censorship from the likes of YouTube. And uh, what happened to you? You actually got uh, completely pulled from YouTube just days later, didn't you? Um, does anyone want to talk about that? Actually, maybe I'll, I'll ask Nolan first. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, that's exactly it. And Alan, thank you for your great um, reporting on this. Um, you know, so much of the, the oxygen has been uh, sucked by right-wingers who are, who are complaining about being censored, demonetized. That's not to say it's not happening to those folks. It is. But um, we rarely have a discussion in this country about how big tech has demonetized and deplatformed a lot of folks on the left and, and left-leaning outlets and more progressive news outlets. Um, what was interesting in our case is, you know, we're scholars that, you know, if you've ever been to a, a conference, you know, they're, they're pretty like, kind of vanilla and boring. It's like a panel of like four or five scholars sharing their work, talking about their papers. 
it's not some like radical rally. But one of the topics, yeah, was uh, Sophia Noble was talking about her phenomenal book, Algorithms of Oppression, which I highly recommend. And uh, that was the keynote speaker. And so, you know, we're critical scholars. We it, Like so much of our work, like all the work at Project Sensor does, you know, we're folks who, who work for free. And so we put this conference together for free. We made it available to people for free. We put it up online for free because we hoped, you know, educators would use it in the classroom. And we heard from a lot of educators who were pretty excited uh, about using it in the classroom. And then I started to get emails from people saying, hey, how come the link you sent me doesn't work? Or how come this link doesn't work? And I went to the main page and all of our videos were gone. And uh, YouTube still has yet to give a reason for why they were removed. At one point, they did. They claimed the videos never existed, as if we all fabricated this conference and these videos, and all these educators had created these links. You know, it's total insanity. Um, we still have not gotten an answer as to why we were removed. Um, I can tell you that there was no copyright uh, copyright infringement, nothing like that. All the videos were different. Um, they were all conversational. Um, the topic was criticizing, you know, big tech in a lot of these videos. And I think that's very interesting. We, we think about the, the removal of that content. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was like being in an onion story. Um, you know, you, you tell people that your conference on algorithmic censorship was censored by an algorithm and, you know, they're thinking it's a punchline, but I'm like, no, this is my life. This actually happened. Yeah, yeah, it did actually I'm sorry, I know you've got to go very soon, but yeah, I will ask you about that deep irony. And also, I know that you've uh, talked about that this isn't, you know, a completely isolated incident. This has happened to other groups criticizing different platforms as well, Nikki. So yeah, uh, feel yeah. free to rip on that and head out if you need to. No, I'm, yeah, I'm good to, to, to ride out with you all. This is a great conversation. It's an honor to be here um, on, on, with Mint Press, with Alan, with Nolan. You know, one of the big stories uh, often that's gone through some of the Project Censored documentaries is, you know, one of the biggest censored stories is Project Censored. Um, you know, there's a big culture in this country that historically couldn't seem to wrap its head around the fact that we have a free press system and censorship too, <laughs> um, right? And so this conference, again, as Nolan put it so so beautifully, <laughs> sardonically, like it, it was like an onion headline. And, you know, you were one of the few journalists that covered it, Alan. Um, we, we, we tried to get some people to cover the story. The other, we ended up putting together an entire series of events with the Real News Network with Max, uh, Max Alvarez around this called The Long Silicon um, po uh, Power and Censorship in the Digital Era. It's a three-part series that Nolan and I were part of, um, Abby Martin, Minar Mahawesh, Adley, um, of course, many others. It was some great series of scholars I would uh, urge your, your um, viewers, listeners to maybe check that out because we went down that rabbit hole of algorithmic censorship. Andy Lee Roth at Project Censored has a fantastic article on the new gatekeeping of algorithmic censorship, um, specifically looking at how it impacted the LGBTQI communities algorithmically where YouTube admitted that they weren't, quote, biased against gay or lesbian culture, but their algorithms apparently were. <laughs> So I don't know how we can have uh, the algorithms go, you know, to get woke training or something. I'm not sure how the algorithm will learn about its own implicit bias unless we go back and look at the people in big tech who are running it and writing the algorithms, right? Um, who are those people? Where are they from? What's their culture? What are their biases? Why can we not peek behind that curtain? You know, so this is a really big problem. And I guess one of the biggest problems associated with censorship, Alan, 
coming on the heels of Banned Books Week again. We're part of a Banned Books Week coalition. Um, the biggest problem with censorship is that people don't know, again, I'm coming back full circle, is people are unaware when something is censored because it's gone. And if we don't focus on the culture of censorship that exists, whether it's algorithmically, whether it's old school government censorship, whether it's marginalizing um, certain voices, um, censorship occurs in many guises and we have to oppose it. It's anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have free press principles. Now, look, we have rules and guidelines. They're sketchy. They're not always agreed upon per se, but we have codes for hate speech, right? We have certain uh, lines of speech that you can't utter without consequence, right? But too often we don't allow those to play out. And real quick, we're just ready to deplatform silence somebody. And I'll echo what Nolan had said repeatedly here. Be careful when you're cheering the silencing of someone, because the next person to be silenced is probably going to be you or somebody, you know, or somebody that's on a cause that's dear to you, which is why we need to have more media literacy, education and diversity in media. And we always have to bring our friend, Nick Johnson in from the FCC, your second priority right? Whatever your first primary area of interest is in civic engagement, if your second priority isn't media democracy, media access, media reform, and free press principles, you're likely to gain very little ground in your primary area of interest because information control is information warfare. We wrote about this in the United States of Distraction. It's been going on for a while. Whomever controls the narrative tends to pull the wires that control the public mind, as Eddie Bernays would say, and as he did say in the 1928 book, Propaganda, before it was a totally sullied term. So yeah, I'm glad you called attention to that because um, the next conference, uh, Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas is coming up October 15, 16, 17. Uh, you can learn more at criticalmediaproject.org or you can learn more at projectcensored.org. I guess uh, we'll wrap this up pretty soon then. I, I suppose my take home message for a lot of this is that even though fake news is a real problem, I think it goes much further than simply a load of Macedonian teenagers blogging on the internet. You know, I think when we look at the most pernicious uh, fake news of this century, for instance, it's surely got to be things like the Iraqi WMD hoax or the idea that uh, Colonel Gaddafi was using these uh, Viagra-fueled rape squads to destroy his country. You know, both of these sorts of things led to wars which killed, you know, millions of people, displaced millions, millions more people, and has um, ended up with an entire section of the world being virtually uninhabitable. And who pushed these? Was this these, you know, little bloggers, you know, uh, wherever they were? No, it was actually the biggest outlets. And that's, you know, you know, the New York Times, CNN, etc. And that's the reason why it's so pernicious, because they have the power and influence, whereas, you know, some, you know, as I said, foreign bloggers, you know, posting on Medium or something, their reach is highly limited. And that's why really, I think our ire and our focus should be drawn towards the most powerful in society, not just a bunch of, uh, you know, people who are talking about how Barack Obama is the Antichrist, ludicrous as that is, I think uh, eyes should be kept very much uh, squarely on the prize here. Yeah, no, I think it's a great, a great point. And that's, um, you know, one of the things, 
we've raised over the years, which is, uh, yes, false information, misleading information is a problem for any democracy. The, the question with how you deal with that, though, one of the things you need to consider is, who are you empowering in the process of dealing with fake news? Or do you want to empower the, the government? Do you want to empower private industry? Do you want to empower a political party? Um, and that, that question has real implications. Because one of the things we've noticed throughout um, history, and I write about this in the anatomy of fake news, is that everybody will jump over themselves to solve the fake news problem because they see an opportunity to empower themselves and spread their own propaganda. So, so the you know aspects of like um, the U.S. government, for example, and they would love to attack what they call fake news so they could get rid of any groups that actually threaten their power, and as a and. Uh, open up space for them to keep perpetuating their own false information. I mean, this is the whole story of the Cold War, right? The U.S. government rightly pointed out Soviet propaganda in, in many cases, but it used that as a pretext to publish its own propaganda. Um, and that, that trend occurs over and over again. And I, I think, Alan, the way you used many of your examples there were, were tied to war. Um, you know, the old adage about um, first victim of war is, is truth, right? That truth always um, uh, is is a victim when it comes to war because you have to convince the people to go against their very basic instinct, right? Which is to not murder someone else. Um, so there, there's a a link, and I, and I show it a lot in the anatomy of fake news in history of fake news and war. Um, so I think those are really critical questions and a great takeaway for for folks. Yeah, and as Nolan was just saying, I mean, you know, going you, we could go rattle off a list whether it's the Spanish American War in 1898. Um, with the great propaganda campaign, remember the main, the newspaper pictures, etc. World War One, the Four Minutemen, the Creel Commission, Eddie Bernays, World War II. Um, you know, we, there's lots of problems with the early narratives of World War II and involvement in World War II, from Pearl Harbor to the dropping of the bomb. Uh, we got, you know, the atrocities of Korea, no gun re, all under the table, all parts of propaganda campaigns that hide the atrocities of the U.S. and manufacture the atrocities of others. Gulf of Tonkin, WMD, you know, what the Pentagon Papers revealed, what we learned after WMD fiasco. This is a pattern. And when we, this is why I'm talking about critical thinking and history again, is because as Nolan deftly pointed out in Anatomy of uh, Fake News, these are the trends and the patterns. These are the, these are not the exceptions. They're basically the rules. And to ignore that evidence is willful. Um, to not teach it is, is to seriously, dangerously flirt with creating a dangerous public that can succumb to dem demagogues. And we've seen that happen historically, and we've even seen it happen here. Yes, it can happen here, Sinclair Lewis. It'll happen differently, right? Wrapped in flags um, in other ways. Uh, but again, you know, there's one other component here, and Nolan's talking about, I think, something that we don't want to lose sight of, and we don't want it to be trite. The pursuit of truth, right? The Rand Corporation, whom we don't get to cite every day, certainly does accumulate a lot of interesting studies. And one they did a couple of years ago was called Truth Decay. And Andy Roth and I at Project Censored found ourselves looking at it for different reasons. And we agreed with many of their findings for different reasons. But it goes to, it goes to the root of what Rene Duretta wrote about, too, for new knowledge, about the fact that we're in an information war. This was all swirling around Mueller and the Russia Gate. And that, you know, if you don't choose a side, you'll automatically be a victim and a pawn in the war of information. Well, scrap that. Um, as Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet, once wrote, truth comes as a conqueror only to those who have lost the art of receiving it as a guest or a friend. That lies with us. 
And we need to model and create institutions that seek truth and are accountable about transparently reporting it as the standard, right? That's the standard of reporting and truth seeking becomes noble, not something that's part of my partisan uh, uh, cudgel to bludgeon other people into submission, but to really build consensus and understanding where we can use our differences as strengths, not weaknesses, and we don't allow them to be used against us by a technocratic, plutocratic elite that's pulling our wires through social media confirmation biases in many ways. And last, there's some, there's some important truth to uncover here. And Nolan um, had the good fortune of actually studying with the historian Catherine Olmsted at UC Davis. And uh, Susan Merritt, a librarian that's worked with us at the Project Censored before, pointed this out in several of her chapters. One of the things that we've been talking about for the last several years over and over and over again is the danger of conspiracy theories, right? And, and that kind of language is pervasive, right? Conspiracy theories about pop world population, conspiracy theory about vaccine, conspiracy theory about pizza places and pedophilia and Democrats. It's all over. But here's a really interesting thing that as an historian, Olmsted pointed out. She said that more often, however, the culture of suspicion created by revelations of government conspiracies undermines democracy. When citizens cannot trust their government to tell the truth, when they are convinced the public officials routinely conspire, lie, and conceal their crimes, they become less likely to trust the government to do anything. So starting to sound familiar. Um, The result is a profoundly weakened polity with fewer citizens voting and more problems left unaddressed for a future generation that is ever more cynical about the possibility of reforms. Well, if past is prologue, back to Lao Tzu, are we there yet? And I would argue that people don't have outlandish conspiracy theories, to quote George W. Bush, who said we should never tolerate them about 9-11. Here we are 20 years later. But we wouldn't have to deal with them if we actually had transparent sources of news and information that weren't part of filter bubbles, that weren't part of a hyper-partisan landscape, that weren't built on a society that lost the ability to think critically and independently. Back to USOD. We didn't end up in this situation overnight. We're not going to get out of it tomorrow. It's going to require a generation of teaching. And hey, 100 years, what a better way to celebrate Paulo Freire. We need to continue the tradition of critical pedagogy, scholarship, to build our understanding and build an informed generation of people that really understands why we cherish the truth and why it's worth seeking and reporting about. You've said it all, Mickey and Nolan. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, Please, if you're watching this, do check out their work, especially their books, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America, and the new one, Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical uh, Media Literacy. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Always a pleasure.